Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshot.net. Special episode, Things We Learned About School During COVID-19. I come from a tradition where I learned two languages in school that many people in the world might consider niche. They're Hebrew and Irish. However, in my family, there was a third language that was spoken in my house, mainly between my father and grandmother, and they spoke to each other in Yiddish. Now, many of you um, will have heard of Yiddish. It's a language that, you know, an Eastern European dialect of Hebrew, really. But... um, Many of you probably didn't know that you do know a bit of Yiddish. Um, If you watch any Hollywood movie, you're bound to hear words like schmuck or schmendrick and even putz, which have double meanings. One, as an insult, if you want to call someone an idiot or an idiot to use some Irish parlance. Um, The other meaning for all three of these words is a part of the male anatomy, shall we say. Yes, for whatever reason, Yiddish has a ridiculous number of words for the word penis. That's only three of them. There's loads more. Anyway, you don't listen to this podcast without learning a thing or two. Anyway, my favourite Yiddish phrase is to have a forribble with someone. I love this phrase, have a forribble. I'm having a forribble with somebody or another. And there really isn't a good English translation for it, to be honest with you. If I'm having a forribble with you, it means that I have a grievance with you. But it wouldn't be any grievance. No, it would have to be something that everybody else thinks is completely trivial. For example, if you forgot to invite me to your party, I might hold a grudge against you for decades, even after I'd forgotten why I was even annoyed with you. It's, it's it let, I, I suppose it's probably just a bit more passive aggressive, um, let's say, than another Yiddish word like a broigus, which is um, a much more angry and direct form of being of a grudge. You, you probably have a forribble with someone um, yourself, I'd imagine. And now you have the word. You learned two things in, in an introduction to this podcast. Who would have thought? However, what has Yiddish got to do with the end of COVID-19 in schools and what schools are going to look like now that all the mitigation measures have been lifted? Well, to be honest, nothing really. But after listening to this, you may feel more broigus than forribly <laughs> as I explore what's changed in the last two years and if there's anything at all to celebrate. Hello, hello, you are welcome to this special episode of If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshaw.net. It's Simon Lewis with you on the verge of us going back to school with all of our mitigation measures gone like a puff of air. Now, you might be wondering where I was going with my mini Yiddish lesson in the introduction. And you'd be glad to know that there, there was actually a reason, however tenuous that reason might be. As I mentioned, like all children who went to school in Ireland, I also had to learn a particular language. Now, most of you listening to this podcast, in fact, I would gauge that all of you listening to the podcast weren't learning Hebrew in school. But you all had to learn Irish if you went to school in Ireland. And there's lots of examples of situations where an Irish word Much like in Yiddish, there's a Yiddish words that don't have real English equivalents, but an Irish word or phrase seems more appropriate than the English language equivalent. I like the verb, for example, to plumas, which is an Irish word, to plumas someone. You you won't hear that anywhere else. And the closest English word 
I've heard for this is to flatter. Um, but there's more to plumasing than flattery. It's more tactical than that. You know, flattery isn't tactical particularly, I suppose, although, you know, there are there is a bit <laughs> a bit of that too. But plumasing is much more than that. It's almost a methodology to soften somebody up. Perhaps gaslighting might be a better word or a better definition for plumasing. And we're certainly going to get a lot of that in this episode. We've certainly been through two years of gaslighting in the education system. However, at the end of this pandemic came much like another Irish phrase. And it's an Irish phrase, I suppose it isn't particularly Irish because it definitely does have an English translation. But it comes, for me, it's summed up really I suppose, a context where you would use this phrase, uh, where every Irish person that went to school used this phrase in a particular, in the same way as this pandemic went. Hear me out here. Pretty much like every single essay you ever wrote in primary school in Irish. Do you remember how they went? It sort of went along the lines of La bra a vi aun, vi me eg sugres a fork, agus chonic me madra. And then the start of the next sentence in almost every single essay you ever wrote in primary school was, yes, you've guessed it, Gutubben. Gutubben literally means suddenly. But for some reason, Gutubben has a kind of more sinister notions around it. Maybe it's just because it's, you know, I, I don't know, maybe the sound of Gutubben sounds better than suddenly. Suddenly sounds a little bit more flowery or flowy. But Gutubben sounds very wooden uh, in some way, very kind of like a beat of a drum. Uh, it sounded just more like a, but to be honest, it sounded much more of an appropriate way of describing the end of the COVID-19 pandemic than the word suddenly. It was like one minute we were under the harshest of restrictions and then Gutubben, it was as if all restrictions were gone. The announcement was generally met with mass celebrations from most people. I was in Dublin the, the day after the announcement and every single pub was full. <laughs> what other way do we celebrate things here in Ireland? But generally, town was buzzing. Um, there seemed to be huge relief amongst most people and that's certainly how it felt. Well, that is to everyone except those of us who worked in schools. Um, because our um, restrictions were basically not being lifted after everybody else. And in fact, some argued that before the announcement, schools were the safest place you could possibly be in the pandemic. And then following that announcement, schools all of a sudden became the least safe place you could be because you still needed to keep those those restrictions in place. However, our restrictions are to be lifted on Monday morning. Um, That is the 28th of February for those of you listening in the future. And that's the 28th of February 2022 to you, those of you listening to this in the far future. This announcement, however, has been met with less adulation, shall we say. A few media outlets kind of focused on the need for children to no longer need to wear masks, and there were murmurs of the end of pods, even though nobody in the media seemed quite clear what they actually were. Commentary from teachers and people working within the system has been very divided and a little bit confused, to be perfectly honest. And the Department of Education released an information note on the 23rd of February when many schools were on their midterm break. So many teachers haven't read it yet at this time of my recording. So what I'm going to do is doublefold in a way, twofold, sorry, not doublefold, is twofold. And I'm not sure how useful it'll be to you, uh, but I'm going to give it a go. And basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarise, no, I'm not going to summarise the document, I'm going to read parts of this document. So all the things that this document says, I'm going to read. But what I'm going to do is use them 
I suppose, as uh, platforms for talking about things that I've learned about schools during COVID-19. Because upon the removal of each item, which is basically what this information note does, it opens up conversations about what's happened to the education system at primary level, in my opinion. Um, Now, my opinion may be something you completely disagree with, and many people do, but, you know, it's all I have. And um, even though this document is only five pages long, my my notes covering this episode are double that. So be in for a a long ride. You're probably quicker reading the document if you want to just get information on that. But if you want my commentary on the education system as a result of it, keep listening. Um, Because in many ways, it tells its own story, the five pages about how many mitigation measures there has been in schools over the last two years. So we'll go through them and let's see if there's any lessons we can learn. The first important sentence in the document was the government has accepted the recommendations of NFET to remove remaining restrictions relating to mask wearing and physical distancing in schools. Now, the funny thing is that it's only when one reads this sentence, you realise how few restrictions there were in place in primary schools. Do you know, it's, it's even more depressing when anyone who's in the education system will rightly point out that physical distancing was a complete myth. So it isn't even one of the remaining restrictions. It was never in place in the first place. So mask wearing and physical distancing are the only two things left according to the Department of Education's first sentence. But one of them didn't even exist really. Children couldn't and didn't physically distance or socially distance as it used to be known. And as for masks, well, Whatever side of the political divide you stood, and yes, it became very political, this measure wasn't even enforceable and many schools were unable to succeed in policing it, enforcing it or doing anything about it. And I'm not sure if there's anything to it, but the political divide around mask wearing in Irish schools was extremely interesting to me. And this is where I go off on my first tangent based on this document. And it's likely where I'm going to find a theme running through this episode. And um, it comes down to how strongly we feel about matters in education and how society mirrors that. So masks for me were a really interesting example of how people feel about education in Ireland, primary education in Ireland. Despite all the things that COVID-19 did to the education system, whether that was how children with additional needs were treated, how children from minority backgrounds were treated, how children in poverty situations were treated, the only thing that brought thousands of people out onto the streets in protest was when the government told parents to put masks on their children. Now, I don't have massively strong views on mask wearing um, for children or adults as opposed to my feelings on how children are generally treated in schools, basically in general. So it says a huge amount to me that people cared more about that, about masks, than they did about anything else in the primary education system. I could name over 100 things that are more pressing to me in the education system than whether a child wears a mask or not. And I've seen some protests in the last decade about them, but nothing to the extent of this one. And leaving aside that this protest was supported and probably organised by far-right-wing organisations, it was attended by thousands of people. Huge numbers went to this protest, whether or not they were of the right-wing views. I don't think most people at that protest march have right-wing views, but, you know, there was a correlation there somewhere. As interesting to me is the fact that now the requirement has been lifted 
This is more, this is as interesting to me because we had huge numbers of people out in the streets about not wearing, putting masks on children. The fact of the matter was there was as many, if not more people interested in, in, in agreeing that children should be wearing masks. I mean, if you know, there certainly was a huge number of people that did agree with uh, children wearing masks. But the interesting thing to me is since that requirement has been lifted, there hasn't been a murmur from the side of people that think it's a good idea for children to wear masks. And to me, what this does is it paints a really interesting picture, not only on the, uh, on the issue of masks, but it paints a picture of why bad things continuously happen in the education system because we do not protest. Now, I wouldn't be joining either of those protest marches because ultimately I don't think they warrant protest marches. But we don't protest anymore. We used to protest, but in the last number of years, and certainly in the last decade, we don't protest about matters about education very often. And ultimately, given that more people supported the use of masks that didn't, there should have been a bigger protest march on the removal of masks, but there wasn't. Yes, there were squeals on social media, if that's what I can call them, that sounds a bit disrespectful, but people were on social media. But to be honest with you, the reason I'm being a little bit disrespectful is because it feels like, do you know when you see things like, oh, sending my thoughts and prayers? You know, when you hear people saying that, uh, you know, it, it's so hollow because it does nothing. It's lovely, but it does absolutely nothing to help anyone. You know, I, you know, I know in some cases that is OK. You know, if, you know, a person dies, all you can do is send your thoughts and prayers or your thoughts or your sympathy because you can't do anything. But in many cases, you know, you can do something. For example, you know, at the moment, you know, Russia are, are, have invaded Ukraine. So, you know. Things like putting a Ukrainian flag on your profile picture without actually donating to the Red Cross or something like that is, is you know, is, is, is my equivalent. Basically, doing, putting up a picture on social media, putting up a post on social media and actually doing nothing else like donating or doing or, you know, protesting, whatever it might be, um, you know, is, is effectively what we've been reduced to doing. And before you say, Simon, pot, kettle, black, you're absolutely right. I can't argue with you on that. What do I do other than send tweets and make podcasts that very few people listen to? And I guess as well, I suppose, I guess, I, I mean, I don't know, I'm not going to protest that because you might say that's all you do, Simon. And, and, and you know, you may very, you may very well be right. And, and maybe, you know, I do do other things, you know, I, I do what I can do, I suppose. I write to the stakeholders. I write to the politicians. I am a member of two lobby groups in education who both do very different things, but uh, but uh, uh, involving education. Obviously, leadership is one of them, but religion and education is the other. But But you're still right. I wish I could do more. But in reality, the first lesson I can learn or maybe we can learn as an education system, is we need to protest more about things that matter. The trouble for me, and I will come on to this in much more detail later on, is that the vehicle we have for protest, i.e. our union, to me is dead. It doesn't do anything. It has become a spokesperson for the uh, public health during the COVID-19 and the government also during COVID-19. It no longer actually fights for its members. And I've spent enough time on this podcast over the last year or two giving examples of how union leadership 
has completely alienated itself from its ordinary members. It no longer listens to its members. Um, you know, most most notably uh, during the, um, as I called it, Soprano-style intervention when uh, in January 2020, when they were trying to send their own members back into, um, into schools pre-vaccine when there was over 8,000 cases a day. Now, I know these days in 2022, that sounds like nothing, but 8,000 cases before vaccines were around was deeply worrying. And the INTO leadership were happy to send their children or send their teachers and members into classrooms at the time. But there were lots and lots of other examples of uh, of this throughout the pandemic. Um, but anyway, uh, I, as I said, I've spent enough time um, talking about that uh, and feel free to listen back. But, you know, it's the problem is all we can expect is things like thoughts and prayers, the equivalent of thoughts and prayers from our union. They can say stuff and they have. You know, I've, I I was going to say, and I, I don't know, it's not appropriate to say this, but I feel in some ways they've done as much for to help the Ukrainian people as they've done to help their members um, uh, uh, in, in trying circumstances. They've sent out tweets showing, saying that they support their members or they support the Ukrainian people. They haven't done anything, though, and that's the problem. They've sent thoughts and prayers. Um, and honestly, I don't really have an answer to it because as a group, we voted to allow this to happen at every single juncture. Um, when we've had a chance to protest, we haven't taken it. For example, the PSSA 2 vote was a really good example of what we, when we could have protested against our leadership who were vehemently trying to uh, doing their best to make sure that we voted in favour of this pay deal. I've never seen so much campaigning uh, to, to get something over the line. And unfortunately, what happened was we voted as close to unanimously as we could in favour of a tiny pay rise. And then we wonder uh, later on why our leaders weren't able to actually do anything about the lack of mitigation measures and the constant gaslighting we were subjected to because part of the PSSA too was that we had to uh, follow public health guidelines even when these guidelines were not grounded in science and we know they weren't grounded in science a lot of the time. We actually don't even have the data uh, anymore to, do, to, to, understand, to know how bad uh, COVID-19 was in schools and how much it uh, effectively um, spread the virus uh, in the community. Anyway, we signed up to that deal and when it came, and, and that came with the lack of ability for industrial action when it came to COVID-19. Next, let's move on to the document. So I've had my first rant, let's say, and how long are we in? Already 20 minutes. This is going to be a long podcast, so I can feel it. Next on the list is here it is. Continued use of good infection prevention and control measures such as hand washing, respiratory hygiene and ventilation is advised. So this is the next bit. So basically, keep your windows open and wash your hands. No mention of the infamous HEPA filters, which again became a political thing. It was really interesting. This HEPA filter uh, stuff became political. And in one or two cases, it became kind of misogynistic. Yeah, I mean, that Sorry, I mean, I know that might sound surprising to some of you. Yes, some men decided to verbally attack experts on ventilation, like trusted experts on ventilation. And yes, these experts' gender came into it, which I, I think it's mad stuff, mad stuff. And speaking of gender, we learned a lot about gender in primary schools. Now, I'm not going to go into it, and I actually think I might do a separate episode on this uh, as, I'm, as I'm thinking. Um, but, you know, this has... because. To be honest, it has nothing to do with COVID, but it has raised the question of gender in primary schools um, um, just 
this this note and it's kind of I suppose it's far too much of a tangent to actually talk about but in the aftermath of Ashton Murphy's murder for those of you who may not remember this by the time uh, you're listening to this uh, Ashton Murphy was a primary school teacher um, who uh, was murdered um, uh, after when going for a run uh, in the afternoon uh, the case is still live so there's absolutely no point in me talking about it but she, there, there is someone accused of murdering Ashling Murphy I, I suppose is probably the most appropriate way of describing it um, but um, effectively you know if we hadn't known it already, we learned we have huge issues with gender and gender violence and uh, in Ireland and misogyny, toxic masculinity, all the rest of it. Now we know this uh, and it didn't take um, the death of a, of a primary school teacher, a female primary school teacher to, for us to know that, but it certainly uh, brought it to the forefront. And I will be, as I said, talking a bit more about this when I can. It was a bit, but the thing was, I was a bit dismayed. Um, and I guess I'm always dismayed by the Labour Party these days. I mean, the Labour Party and the INTO are very much married to each other in a way. They're the, I mean, the Labour Party, I mean, for all they're bad, I mean, maybe it is. Maybe they, they mirror each other and how poor they are. But the Labour Party are where they are in the political sphere in Ireland, in my opinion, because of their absolute inability to read the room and to understand why their supporters and they had supporters, including myself up until 2015, how we left in droves um, at the next election in 2016 and never came back. It's unfortunate that they do nothing beyond populism. And I've written to their spokesperson on a number of occasions. And despite his lovely speeches, he doesn't actually engage with the very people wanting to make the changes that he somehow, he thinks that if he calls upon in public, he doesn't talk to the people that actually make those changes, can actually help. However, maybe that's something I learned during COVID-19, rather than it being a lesson that schools have learned because of COVID-19. Maybe it's a lesson I learned rather than what schools should learn. However, in the broader scheme of things, it does sum up how little the political world cares about education, reducing it to point scoring and all that kind of stuff on issues that make absolutely no positive difference in the grand scheme of things in education. Yes, there shouldn't be any such thing as single sex schools, but using the murder of a teacher or the, or the uh, alleged murder of a teacher that possibly went to one, of these single sex schools. Now, I don't know if they did, but it would be very interesting. It's kind of interesting. I Googled this to find out if Ashton Murphy went to a single sex school. I get that. I, I don't know. I've absolutely, I, I have no idea whether she did or not, but there's no articles of all the articles I read. There was nothing saying that she did or not. And it'd be interesting if the Labour Party, I, I don't know. It's, it seems callous. It seems it seems wrong to even start this sentence. And actually, I, I, I don't want to go there. I'm not going to go on about it. Anyway, as I said, it's for a different episode. But, you know, I just feel that Labour... Labour's. I, I. I was. I was actually going into that vulgarity, that vulgar world of trying to use um, a situation, a horrific situation, to uh, to to earn political points or to or to you know talk about uh, an issue that's absolutely unrelated to it. And I think the Labour Party. If I've learned anything, it's that the Labour Party don't deserve um, any redemption whatsoever. Next up, critical components of the collective response in relation to COVID-19 continue to apply, including self-isolation if symptomatic. This is going to be extremely hard to manage. Um, now, I mean, it was a wordy kind of sentence, but basically, if as a child is symptomatic, has any symptoms of COVID-19, which are basically the same symptoms of a cold or a cough or whatever it might be, they should continue to isolate. Now, there is absolutely no way 
to manage this. I have no idea how we're going to manage it. And given there's no testing anymore, it seems that any child with a cough, cold or sputter will be deemed to be unable to stay in school. And is that correct or not? I don't know. Maybe we should never have been allowing children come to school with colds and coughs and all the rest of it. But given that the rest of society has essentially gone back to normal, working parents are going to find this extremely difficult. Naturally, as a result of that, schools are going to become targets of abuse as a result of this, I think. I can already picture the articles in various media outlets of how someone's child only had a sniffle and was barred from coming in and had to stand outside in the freezing cold while they waited for their working parent to drive in an hour from work to collect them. And by this stage, the child's sniffle had turned to pneumonia. And not only was their child worse off, the parent lost a week of pay as a result. You, you know, you get the idea. One thing that really, really jumped out to me from the pandemic was how little regard many people have for primary schools. Essentially, it was hard not to feel like we are just seen merely as free childcare rather than a place where children receive the foundations of their education, which they carry throughout their life. And perhaps this was the first piece of learning I've learned about schools during COVID-19 never mind what I've said before. COVID-19 had huge effects on the education system. However, what it did most was to shine a light on all of its deficiencies. It was amazing to see how many deficiencies that COVID-19 showed, whether that was how we treat children with additional needs to those uh, to, along to how we treat children from minorities or children in poverty situations, as I said before. COVID-19 brought it into focus in a massive way. The only problem was as soon as school buildings opened again, because COVID-19 closed down school buildings, as soon as the buildings opened, nobody cared about any of the issues. All people seemed to care about was whether the doors opened or not. And it didn't matter how the children, what happened to the children once they were inside the schools. Let's take additional needs, for example, because it it's the one that most people care about. Most people don't care about religion or minorities in schools. Most people, well, they probably do care a little bit more about poverty, uh, uh, children in poverty. But what most people seem to care most about was children with additional needs. When school buildings closed during, uh, uh, in the earlier parts of COVID-19, it became apparent that some children, with additional, not all children, but some children with additional needs were unable to access learning online. However, what also came to the surface was that many children with additional needs received a lot of their therapies in school from SNAs and teachers, despite none of that being our remit in any way or being even qualified to provide these therapies. Things like speech and language therapy, occupational therapy and so on. Now, campaign groups, lobby groups, part time advocates who generally seem to only advocate for one person and full time advocate groups all seem to be very, very active when school buildings were closed, threatening legal action through a particular solicitor against schools and saying that they were going to bring boards of management to task because and the, and the Department of Education to task as well. And, and this was their way of getting children with additional needs back into schools where they would have their mental health and all the rest of it looked after. The trouble is, however, hilariously, many of these uh, therapy people who were front and centre giving out about schools for not opening to children with additional needs, they stopped when it was pointed out that they themselves had shut their doors to these very children they were defending to the death. However, as soon as the doors of schools reopened as well, they all seemed to disappear as if nothing was wrong again. All of the problems that existed before school buildings closed um, remained. 
and most of them were exacerbated because of the restrictions and substitute crisis. And the vast majority of children with additional needs received very little of their supports because so many special education teachers had to cover classes. And many of the children couldn't access things like the multi-sensory room because of the restrictions or any of the other sensory sort of things that schools have. And the NCSE continued with their decade-long series of cuts by stealth, kept going and going with those cuts. And where were all those lobby groups? Where were all those um, advocacy groups threatening their legal action? Nowhere. That's where they were. Absolutely nowhere. Effectively, the only thing that they seemed to really care about was that children were in school. It didn't really matter what they were getting from being in school. They were just in school. And it wasn't just children with additional needs. In fact, if you read any of the journalists' rants against teachers and their unions from January 2020, you you, you would have thought that they actually gave a toss about education from reading them. But the reality was, as soon as children went back into the school buildings with all the restrictions and all the uh, lack of um, service that, that, that basically kept being cut all the time, their chatter died off. All their rants ceased. Not a single article was written about the deficiencies within the education system. The only things they seemed to care about were those relating to babysitting, basically. The substitute crisis. Would schools reopen after Christmas in 2020, uh, going into 2021? Would schools make up the days lost to Storm Barra? Basically, all babysitting related things, nothing educational. And as much as I might have celebrated the media finally taking interest in education, the reality was that the media took an interest on a babysitting service, a very expensive one at that too. Unfortunately, for someone like me who believes that the early years and primary years of education have huge value, it's depressing to feel that our jobs are basically seen as childminders rather than educators. Not that one is better than the other. I'm not trying to say that being a childminder is a bad job or anything like that or has any less than being a teacher. It's just I didn't sign up to be a childminder or babysitter. I signed up to be a teacher. So, so far, the information note is bringing me into all sorts of directions of what I've learned from COVID-19 and very little of them educational. And the document really continues in that vein. Next up is that we still have to promote good good hygiene. So I had the opportunity to speak uh, to one of the heads of public health about this, actually, um, during the pandemic. Um, generally, um, you know, sometimes as a principal, you, you often get to talk to people who you might not have access to. And I, I managed to have a conversation with one of the heads of public health at the time. And she said that the main thing she had taken from the mitigation measures, and she said there were mitigation measures because I was kind of being you know, I suppose my usual self saying basically nothing has been done from in terms of mitigation measures. You start, you know, listing some of the things that I wouldn't consider mitigation measures. And one of them was hand washing because I wouldn't have seen that as a mitigation measure. Uh, but she said, like, the one thing she'd take was how important hand washing actually was, not just in a pandemic, but all the time. And she believed that it was probably the most important measure of all. Now, to be honest, I'm not qualified to argue against that. So... I'm just not going to. So let's move on. Um, the information note talks more about masks, uh, namely that they're not needed on transport, but hand sanitizer and pre-assigned seating should remain in place. Now, I've no idea what difference this is going to make to people. Did we learn anything about COVID-19 about transport? Well, I guess some people did, but naturally it's nothing to do with making life better for children. Uh, as always, it's all about the economy. 
Right now, there is a consultation about bus transport with the Department of Education, and it's thinly veiled as a way to improve it. But the reality is it's just trying to convince us how to cut costs without actually looking at the reasons as to why the costs in the first place are so high. And I've done a full episode on um, bus transport and what we need to do um, to help fix it. So I'm not going to do that. I only recorded that very recently, so there's no point in going through all that again. Uh, This episode is long enough, to be honest, without it. The next uh, section of this uh, information note finally explains why pods and bubbles and actually what they were really to be honest with you because as far as most people were concerned uh, certainly in the education field they were simply spherically shaped names for groups and classes which exact basically of course that's all they were Um, you know it's kind of funny most classrooms didn't really change that much because of pods and bubbles but according to the note It says it is recognised that this has impacted on teaching and learning and the normal socialising and mixing between and within classes and year groups. As a general requirement for physical distancing in society no longer applies, schools are no longer required to maintain class pods and bubbles. Now, I don't know if anyone noticed. It was impossible for children to physically distance in most classrooms because they were too small to physically distance. In fact, the exemplars, I don't know if you remember this at the time, assumed that most classrooms were 80 square metres. Most classrooms in Ireland weren't even half of that. And perhaps the only real impact was that we couldn't mix groups for particular subjects, which was restricting in fairness, and we couldn't bring the whole class up to the front of the classroom for introductions and things like that of lessons. So teachers were kind of restricted to whole class methodologies. So to be fair, as the Minister for Education likes to say, this is, I suppose, positive. I just don't believe that when they came up with the idea of pods and bubbles, that they really meant what they think they're saying they meant now. However, it does go on. This facility, this so I was to say, yeah, this will facilitate a return to team teaching, sports, singing and music, because none of those things happened, breakfast clubs and inter-schools activities so we can play with other schools again. And then it goes on. Use of changing rooms, PE halls and lockers, staff rooms, etc. can resume where there has been limited access in this regard. Where schools implemented staggered drop-offs or pickups or breaks, there are no longer necessary. Well, let's reverse the sentence there. Apart from the fact that it's absolutely news to me that there are primary schools in Ireland with changing rooms and lockers, this is all fine. However, on second thoughts, the fact that whoever wrote this circular thinks that primary schools have changing rooms and lockers raises the next question I have about what we've learned from COVID-19 in schools. And that I guess most of us ask from time to time about the Department of Education. And that question is, how far removed are they from the everyday of primary schools and how they actually work. The fact that they think we have changing rooms and lockers raises the question that the answer to that question is they are very, very far removed. Throughout the pandemic, the Department of Education has issued information notes and circulars that make absolutely no sense to the everyday running of schools. Pods and bubbles and physical distance were the most obvious examples, but there were many, many more. However, for me, It's the gulf between the expectations of what boards of managements can do and the reality of what they actually can do and how that impacted on principals and teachers throughout the pandemic. That was a major cause for concern for me and what I've learned a lot about this pandemic and uh, the running of schools. 
Take, for example, the mask mandate that uh, I was talking about before that was issued to schools less than 16 hours before it was to be implemented by boards of management. The expectation was that boards of management would be responsible for it. Now, if you give 16 hours notice to a school about uh, masks and you think the boards of management are going to be able to have, are going to meet to be able to discuss this within 60, you know, 16 hours. The reality is, and this isn't a joke or anything like that. This is, this is just the reality is boards of management meet five times a year. That's it. And the reality is the boards of management consist of seven volunteers and a principal who gets a token pay payment for being on the board of management. And the reality is that almost everything that is foisted on boards of management is passed on to, to the principal to do as per a principal's contract that was last updated in 1973. And the reality is that when it came down to it, when the Department of Education issued directives to boards of management, they are basically issuing these directives on to principals. And this meant that during the pandemic, principals were expected to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, when our stakeholders suggested that schools would become involved in contact tracing. And for those of you with very, very short memories, because a lot of us seem to have very short memories, the INTO and IPPN suggested that schools would be available to take calls from public health if there was to be a case of COVID-19 in a school. And this was... This, I suppose, was at a time, and, and some of you might forget this too, when there were very few cases in the country. So the likelihood at that time was a principal might get a call once in a blue moon, let's say. However, as a result of this nice decision from our stakeholders, it meant that the Department of Education wrote to all schools, not requesting, demanding the principal's personal phone number so they could be contacted at any time. And yes, before you balk at the suggestion or you think, what principal, what kind of principal would, would agree to this? Some principals, and I'm not going to name names, some principals defended this, defended this call, saying, oh, well, I'd rather know than not know if there was a case. I wouldn't mind getting a call at three in the morning about a case of COVID-19. Well, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating about the three in the morning, but I'm not really either. And perhaps, you know, in some ways, I guess we learned three things. One, how little the Department of Education understand the running of schools and perhaps how that suits them. Two, how little the Department of Education and the stakeholders care about teachers and principals as they expected them to work 24 hours a day. It's a pandemic after all. And I suppose three, which is related to one and two, how little the Department of Education understand boards and management and how they no longer can be expected to fulfil all the legal requirements that simply didn't exist decades ago. So we have another lesson to learn. How do we intend to manage schools in the future? And it's a question I'm going to leave hanging because, you know, I, I, I could spend a couple of episodes on what, what are we going to do about boards of management? In fact, I think if I recall, I have already done an episode based on that. Next up was a reminder about substitutes. Schools are asked to continue to make every effort to obtain a substitute for all teacher absences. Non-classroom teachers should only be used as a measure of class resort. That's special education teachers, not non-classroom teachers is what they're calling them now. I'll come back to that. Where it's not possible to secure a substitute teacher through any other sources. This brings me to the embarrassment of what we learned about the Minister for Education. 
Now, Norma Foley could have been any minister, so this isn't personal about her particularly. I can't imagine Joe McHugh would have been any different had he have stayed in the position, and I can't imagine if Norma Foley had been tossed to the side, um, whether her replacement would have been any different either. What I learned about the position, what I learned about the position of the Minister for Education, was that the politicians in charge of education have almost no grasp on what actually happens in schools. And this is surprising when it comes down to particularly the previous two ministers who were both teachers before they became politicians. But the ignorance around what happens on the ground was baffling. The ministers essentially became mouthpieces for senior civil servants who know even less about the system. And this was brought to the forefront, in my opinion, during the height of the substitute crisis during COVID-19, when the minister made an absolute mockery, in my opinion, of her position on the infamous interview on News Talk where she denied there was a substitute crisis in school. Constantly denied. There's no problem. There's no problem. I never heard anything. And not only did they do that, it went even further. For years, schools have been basically plastering over the crisis of substitutes. There's been a substitute crisis of teachers since about 2015, 2016, roughly, by doing one of two things. This is how we covered it up and plastered over it. We split classes so children were babysat for days when a substitute couldn't be found. And that's literally all that happened. They were babysat at the back of classrooms, given busy work. Uh, and again, that kind of brings us back to an earlier thing we talked about and we learned was that no one ever complained about their child's class being split. As long as they were babysat, no one seemed to really care. I don't know. I mean, I certainly find that unusual and something that really didn't come into my mind until the, the COVID-19 pandemic. You just kind of did it. The second thing schools did was they used a special education teacher to cover a class teacher when a substitute couldn't be gotten really or if a substitute leave wasn't available so if you had a uh, if your teacher was off on an EPV day well maybe not an EPV day and you couldn't split the class for example a special education teacher would usually cover or on the first day of sick leave a special education teacher may have to cover a class and rather than actually deal with this what rather than deal with this problem the minister actually put in a rule that schools were forbidden to use a special education teacher and while this has now been backtracked in embarrassing fashion, as always, because it is embarrassing, you can see the language they've used. Did you see that? They didn't say special education teacher, non-classroom teacher. They changed the language. Very, very Orwellian sort of stuff going on. For a couple of weeks, schools basically had to ignore this ruling, this embarrassing ruling, that they had no grounding in reality. And what we learned is that the minister, in her desperation to appear to be on the side, in quotation marks, of children with additional needs. The reality was she and her department did absolutely nothing for these children. In fact, they made the situation even worse. And in the end, as she floundered and the spin doctors couldn't do anything about it, an emergency measure called banking hours or banked hours came into fruition. And this sort of helped children with additional needs before, you know, before these were, these, these, basically what happened was if you couldn't get a substitute, you could bank the hours that they would have got. And then sometime later when you could get a substitute, you could use those hours to teach children with additional needs. But it was very hickledy-pickledy and it's an emergency measure that really shouldn't have been needed. There should be enough substitutes in the first place, which there isn't. But uh, anyway, the, the fact is they, they did them for, as an emergency measure and then removed them even though there was still a substitute crisis and they pretend, oh, there's not going to be a substitute crisis at all. And it, it continued as expected because there is a substitute crisis. So they had to be reinstated back in January. So from September to December, they were removed 
uh, and they haven't been replaced and basically they were brought back in January of 2022 and um, essentially because we still have a substitute crisis the department is permitting the banking of set hours from January until the Easter break is what they've said in this, in this information note so we get another month um, of being able to bank hours when we have a substitute crisis which still uh, exists it's it's basically the very least they can do without actually doing anything useful however still on this i learned another thing that i learned from this debacle of the substitute crisis is far more worrying far far more worrying a far more worrying crisis and that is the stakeholders or the partners as the minister prefers to call them and it's an interesting term of phrase the partners rather than the stakeholders she sees them as friends and anyone in education will tell you there are far too many partners or stakeholders involved in the primary education system I've spoken to you before about a meeting I went to on behalf of one of these stakeholders. It was about technology and education, which is an area, uh, as some of you know, I'm, I'm very uh, familiar with. And I thought I, when I went there, there might be, you know, five or six people in the room. And um, when I spoke uh, about technology and education, the plan they were had for technology and education, there were 32 different stakeholders in that room. Now, too many cooks and all that. The effect of this particular meeting, because there were so many people at it, was nothing was decided and nothing got done. And the original plan, it became, actually turned out not to be a consultation meeting. It turned out to be someone from the Department of Education who knows nothing about technology and education, told us what was going to happen. Everyone was able to say a sentence or two and effectively nothing, no, nothing anyone said actually happened. However, when it comes to the main partners in education, because there now seems to be a hierarchy of partners in education, there isn't 32. Right now, there seems to be four of them. <clears throat> and I describe them, I suppose, as the prefects of education. Well, actually, I've never called them the prefects before now, but I'm going to now. Now I'm going to call them the prefects. So we have the partners, who are the 32, 33 different people with ideas. And then you've got the prefects, the four big boys in the education and they're not all boys actually to be fair although most of them are um the INTO IPPN National Parents Council and the CPSMA are the education prefects they're the ones charged with consultations with the Department of Education now I don't mind if they actually helped but the result of this partnership is that none of them actually publicly criticize the Department of Education or each other even when they make horrendous errors of judgment. I'm going to give you some examples. When the minister denied that sub-crisis on that infamous interview on News Talk, not a single one of them made a comment about it. Not a single one of them commented on it. And these are people who, in fairness to them, do mention a substitute crisis. But when the Minister for Education messed up royally about it, they were silent. They didn't say a word and it was a perfect time to hold her to account and they didn't. Another example, when a principal closed her school due to a large outbreak of COVID-19, one of the partners not only didn't defend the decision, they went on radio and threw her under the bus. Absolutely threw her under the bus. It was an RT radio interview where they were um, asked about the situation and they basically refused to defend the decision 
and basically said that they buy they follow public health advice and they stood by that public health advice effectively saying what that principal did was wrong i complained to the deputy president about it at that time and i received the following response to my message where i said i basically you know i can't believe they threw you know they threw that principal under the bus like what's going on Um, and because I know her I mean uh, I thought it'd be fair enough to do that the response I got was thanks Simon that was it nothing more when the National Parents Council were silent for the entire pandemic and they only woke up on the issue of masks where they stated they had concerns about the wearing of them basically the only thing the National Parents Council commented upon on the entire pandemic twice was about masks and concerns around children wearing masks now the fact of the matter is public health if you are following public health public health suggested or recommended the wearing of masks and the national parents council who are partners the only time they commented on the pandemic was on that none of the partners said a word about those comments despite the fact they loved saying we're always guided by public health advice except when one of their partners stepped out of line and when that happened they said nothing the National Parents Council stepped out of line there and do you think any of them said anything? No. Again, I wrote to both the INTO and the IPPN about this. Did I get a response? No. When the INTO demanded that the Department of Education provided medical would provide medical grade masks to teachers and, uh, uh, you know, and, and in, the la- in the last round of demands, you know, the way the INTO get all flustered and pretends to, you know, call for things. So they call for medical grade. We demand medical grade masks to teachers or they won't be going back to school. And effectively, the Department of Education laughed in their faces. The INTO then followed up with a statement rather than saying we're, we're you know, rather than actually doing anything about it. They actually issued a statement saying they had secured them after all. Um, <laughs> basically that, you know, schools could use their money um that was provided for sanitizer. You know, they, they basically pretended they won or something. It was, did anyone hold them to account for that? Did any of the other partners say, but INTO, you didn't actually have a victory there. You, you failed. No, of course not. You already know the answer to that. And finally, when uh, the leader of, um, of the uh, INTO uh, told one of his members that she needed to calm down um, be, uh, after she was um, criticising their lack of action, none of the partners, of course, said a word at all. I could go on and on and on and on and on. And on a previous episode, I spoke about a virus more dangerous, far more dangerous than COVID-19 that was gathering pace. And the main carrier of this virus is good people doing nothing and and at the end of the day all of these people the INTO IPPN National Parents Council CPSMA they're full of good people I have great time for most of them well you know I don't know the person from National Parents Council but uh, the other three people I've spoken to the I've, I've good relationships with all three of them or I think I've good relationships they may not like me at all but I feel I have a good rela- personal relationships with them but um, at the same time you know, when good people do nothing, bad things happen. And we know more about this than ever before at this time of recording. Um, and, you know, oh, I don't know. During COVID-19, I learned really, I suppose, that we have no leadership. That's a really harsh thing to say, isn't it? I, but I, I kind of I kind of feel I could say that now. Uh, you know, after two years, we had no leadership whatsoever from our stakeholders from our representatives and during the pandemic I mean on top of that during the pandemic I became a board member 
of one of these partners. And within one meeting, I realised that I'd made a terrible mistake. I mean, it took me 10 years to join that board. And I realised that if I ever, ever was to get into a position where I could make even the slightest bit of difference, I would have, you know, I got to the board, was able to make, realised very quickly there isn't, I, I, I don't know why I was there, to be honest with you. Um, but it was really to be almost like a waiting game, you know, to, to get into a higher position within that where you could have some influence. But by the time I would actually get into a position where I could make that bit of difference, I would have had to have agreed to or, you know, lay down in order to allow certain things to happen that I just don't feel I could ethically stand over, um, you know, stand over them. But by the time that I got to the top, if I ever got to the top, I mean, I don't think I ever would. But if I ever had of, I would have, I wouldn't have actually been able to stand up in front of my colleagues with any integrity, to be honest with you, because of the amount of things I would have had to let slide. Now, I know that sounds really harsh. And I even as I'm saying it, I feel a bit uncomfortable saying it. And maybe I'm very naive. Um, and I, I probably am being very naive. In fact, people have accused me of being completely naive. Lots of people saying, you know, Simon, it's all about compromise of politics and so on. You have to be, you know, you have to take a few punches, you know, in order to get a few breadcrumbs or whatever it might be. Well, they don't say that. To make any changes, you do have to, you know, compromise on things. But the thing is, I, you know, and I, I know that's how the world works in politics, you know, absolutely. You know, it's exactly how the world of politics work. I know that. You know, I'm not stupid either. I am. I may be a little bit naive, but I'm not that naive. But, you know, you know, in the world of politics, for example, if person called a chief whip and their job is basically to make sure nobody says anything against the party line even if the party line is absolutely reprehensible i mean we've seen that you know i'm reminded i think of oh god i don't know how long ago there was a vote on the cervical cancer screening for for um for girls and the government parties had to vote against it even though it was a reprehensible thing to do but that's what has to happen in politics um however i just feel in the world of education i don't think our stakeholders need to do that. Their job is to hold the government to, to task. And unfortunately, I think they've fallen into that trap of towing the line. And I suppose all I can say is, you know, it's something I've learned and hopefully one day that might change. Finally, the information note tells us about the infamous COVID-19 hotline. Remember this? Apparently no one is ringing it anymore anyway. So it's only going to be open from Monday to Friday, uh, I think from nine to five. Um, and this phone line um, originally started off as a COVID-19 hotline before Norma Foley used it for absolutely everything, including as a place that principals should have been ringing to let them know they'd no substitutes. But I'm going to make myself angry again if I bring that up. So I'm not going to repeat that story of that infamous interview on News Talk. Now, obviously, I could probably go on about things we learned about education with COVID-19 and I've barely scratched the surface, even when the, on the few areas that I've actually spoken about. However, I've gone on for far too long, even for me. I'm already nearly up to an hour on this podcast episode that on a, based on a five page document. However, I feel I'm going to need another episode or two to go through more things we've learned about education during COVID-19. But I'm going to stick to what I've said so far. I guess one final thing I've learned was how very, how a very, very short information note opened up massive talking points about our system, which really have very little to do with pedagogy. Um, and they've very little to do, they've also had very little to do with a very small number of mitigation measures that we got during COVID-19. Our education system is extremely fractured with absolutely no leadership anymore to, to help with it. I mean, I, it kind of, 
in a way, in some ways, if I could sum this episode up in, in a sentence, is that we lost our leadership during COVID-19. And there's dozens of lobby groups um, that now exist as a result of it. They didn't, ex- you know, they, there were there was always a couple. There's lots, there's so many lobby groups. There's m- so many lobby groups, but they've no power. As what's happened is we have, the partners have become a kind of cartel with the Department of Education. You've got the Department of Education and the prefects and their policy. And it's, it's, it's obviously not written anywhere, but the policy is they stonewall whatever any of these lobby groups have to say, even if what they have to say is useful. And on top of that, you know, so we've got this, that, that part of the problem. This is one part of the problem is the um, no one can do anything because there's a cartel at the top who are basically defending each other or basically stonewalling any kind of, I suppose, anyone speaking out about things. And then on top of that, you have this huge apathy but towards primary education beyond it being a childcare service. And that's very, very disappointing as well, because and, and, and in fairness, there's unfortunately, as much as people kind of say that primary education is important at every juncture, all it came down to was people only cared when children were in schools and it didn't really matter ha- what happened when they were actually in school. It's not a new thing. I mean, you can take lots and lots of uh, different examples of this. One one example I would always come back to because I always have to bring religion into these podcasts is that the Department of Education don't care about religion in schools. They don't care about it at all. All they care about is children getting into schools. So remember we had the baptism barrier. That was basically solved when they removed, sort of removed the baptism barrier. All they did was bring that barrier into the school, moved from outside the school gates to inside the school building. So once there were bums on seats, no one really cares once the school, uh, and in some ways, most parents don't care as long as they got into a school. And so you've got all that apathy that teaching at primary level and childcare seem to be more important than actual pedagogy and all that sort of stuff and you've got agencies like the teaching council you know their job you know when you've got apathy and you're reducing primary education to, to childcare, the teaching council's job they like like they're doing nothing about this they're doing nothing to challenge the fact that primary education was reduced to childcare during COVID-19. Now, for those of you who don't know, the main purpose of the teaching council is not to take €65 off a teacher to have them registered. That's not the main purpose of it. It's to promote the professionalism of the teaching profession. It's supposed to promote professionalism. And it's possible you may not know that because there isn't a single instance of this happening during COVID-19, except for some annual hurrah called failure, which in some ways is as influential as patting yourself on the back. And that's all it does. It doesn't actually promote anything. It's one, when you do something tokenistically, it means nothing. And this is you know, we could we could use lots of examples again if we go into the idea of diversity in schools and all that sort of stuff. When you have an intercultural day, you're doing nothing to improve interculturalism in schools. What you're doing is you're reducing it to tokenism. So basically when failure exists, failure is the day of the year where the teaching council bring a load of people together to promote the teaching. But when you do it once in a year, you're failing to do it. You're actually failing to. It should be an everyday thing to promote the professionalism of, of teaching. But um, anyway, um, we've a lot to talk about and I'm going to keep talking um, <laughs> I'm going to keep talking about this and I'll never finish and uh, you know as I said we're you know, almost at an hour now and I, I really feel I need to stop because there's so much um, more I could be saying but I feel I've 
in a way I feel I've, I've kind of I'm landing punches in places where, where I, I, I'm not meaning to do that particularly but I, I feel it's important to speak out even when it's unpopular to do so um, on these things and maybe this wasn't the intention of this um, episode when I started off I, I simply wanted to summarise what the information note was going to say but it's really brought me into thought processes around what's been going on and we have um, massive problems with our stakeholders we've massive problems with the teaching council who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing um, and you know we also have this apathy towards primary education um you know being any more than a than a child mining service um now i, I again I'm, I'm being i suppose doomsday scenario here on this i know this isn't everybody um in fact i know lots of people have huge um admiration for the teaching profession um and maybe they're lost in the in the i suppose the media and the stakeholders and, and the silence i suppose because it does feel a little bit silent in some ways but look i'm going to keep doing what i have to do even if it does nothing yes tweeting podcasting yeah you know what good is it really going to do writing letters Writing letters to politicians, writing letters to stakeholders, yeah, it probably does nothing either. I don't really know what more I can do. But I suppose while I'm doing what I'm doing, I hope you'll do what you do and join in the discussion too. Because if that's all we have for the moment, maybe that's all we have. And hopefully over time things might change. Maybe our voices will be heard and uh, maybe our stakeholders um, will begin to listen to some of the voices that are going out there and maybe it's who is speaking rather than what the people are saying uh, that will make the make the difference so um that is our information note summary which is longer than the information summary information note itself and um i suppose if i were the minister for education i think i would probably be asking a lot of questions about who my friends are and whether i need to be reassessing they are so there we have it that is my summary um which is longer than the actual information note but i think it touched on some areas that maybe we do need to have a look at a bit more particularly around leadership partners how we discuss the education system i mean with a critical eye i think something that's really important about education is how we critique um, and how we how we have critical thinking. It's one of the skills that we're supposedly giving to people. But critical thinking, I guess, is not uh, welcomed by people because it involves criticism of what people are doing. But again, I suppose none of this is at all aimed at people in particular. It's aimed at what they're doing or what they're not doing, I suppose, as uh, to be, I suppose, a bit more blunt about it. Anyway, I hope it's, you know, raised a few questions in your mind, in your head. Uh, it's very long um, it's it's a bit depressing. But if you have somewhat enjoyed it and you uh, would like to hear more uh, from this podcast, you can subscribe on any of your favourite podcasting platforms, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or any of the rest of them. I use CastBox. Uh, I don't get anything from CastBox for saying that, but I do like CastBox um, as it uh, is a nice uh, podcasting platform. Um, and also, um, if you've enjoyed it, you might leave a review of this podcast because it will help other people find it more easily that's it for me for this week thanks uh, so much for listening to this special episode uh, i have 
um, uh, kind of I'm in the middle of recording something on technology and education so this is kind of interrupting that um, so uh, look out for that next Friday uh, best of luck going back to school all mitigation measures are over we're free uh, say some people or we're doomed uh, say others I don't know where we are uh, let's hope uh, they've made the right decisions on what they've made and uh, keep safe keep well and we'll see you again soon all the best bye bye